yield me? Just one word. Sounds, by the way, that the Aspen leaves whisper in Aspendale. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in one of the songs in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm pretty sure it's um, Seriously, uh, if you missed the RUF Winter Retreat Aspendale, you didn't miss that much. Oh, just some incredible fun, good teaching, and some great community. Well, maybe you did miss something. Anyway, um, we're thankful to be back here all together in Corbett. I know last week um, I was ill, there was Hardman, um, it was just disorienting, everybody was lost, um, grumbling in the wilderness, it was tough. Um, so I'm really glad that we could kind of restore things back to the way the rifle is supposed to be in Corbett. Um, for those who don't know me, uh, what is he doing, whispering things from Lord of the Rings? Um, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship uh, at New Mexico State. It's a camp- Christian campus ministry. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the insider and the outsider, for the student who two steps in a black tie bolo, and the student who longboards in a hoodie Tom's uniform. That's standard issue, by the way, for longboarding, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Sometimes there's like a variant for bands, but it's basically like biker spandex. Um, so, just letting you know that. Um, RUF exists for those who buy into Christianity for the long haul and those who are pretty willing and able on the spot to buy and sell, or mostly sell, Christianity in a second. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, Thanks for coming. I hope you feel welcomed. Um, if you've been around RUF for a while, maybe introduce yourself to somebody new. Um, if you're new, welcome, and maybe just meet a, folk, a few folks, a folk or two. Um, this is sign-up. Ah, okay, can you pass around the sign-up? If you, this is totally optional. If you want to get more information on RUF, if you want to know what's going on, this is an email sign-up. Um, if you signed up before, please don't sign up again. Otherwise, you'll get multiple emails. Um, we don't do that throw of a check. I'm sorry. And if you're um, interested or not, that's fine. We're not going to spam you. You can get off at any time. We also have a Facebook group, NMSU RUF on Facebook. It's a nice little page with lots of wonderful wall conversation these days. Um, so let me just... I encourage you, thanks for coming to this, but you can take the next step and possibly look at a Bible study if you're not already in a Bible study. Um, What that looks like is um, looking at your nice little bulletin on the back there, and you've got a bunch of Bible studies listed. And I'm just going to ask, I didn't really ask the people to do that, but I'm going to have them stand up and say their name. So if you're looking for a Bible study, um, that you'll know who to look for. So if you're leading a Bible study, stand up. I'm just going to go around and say your name. Um, so you don't have to say anything else but your name. So um, I'll start. I'm Sid, and I lead the freshman Bible study with and pass it. I'm Jen. And you well? Do I pass it? Yeah, and you also lead the co-ed Bible study. Philip and I lead on Wednesdays at my house. Co-ed. 6:30, we're doing Sermon on the Mount. It's great. We've only done a few, but it's, they don't build on each other, so you can just come out and pick it up. 
Cool. Ethan, you're Hello, I'm Ethan. I lead the guys that will send my goal. Yeah, and look at the bulletin for info. I'm Emily. Oh, Tessa. And they leave the girls' study on Monday night. And then... Wendy, Ashley. And they leave the co-ed study on Wednesday. So look at the bulletin. You guys can sit down. I mean, stand down. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that, guys. It's not a military term. <laughs> Watch out if it's sick. <laughs> I'm feeling fit. Um, 20 push-ups on the spot. Um... So, those are some, some kind, lovely folks. Um, look at your bulletin, look at your schedule, find a time, maybe catch them after a large group, what we're doing here, and talk to them. It'd be great. Um, they'd love to talk to you about coming to their study. It's not too late. They just started. Um, you can come at any time. You can leave at any time. And basically, the reason we're talking about small group Bible studies is that RUF believes in knowing Jesus and knowing each other, and that both of those things happen best together. We know each other and we know Jesus well together. And small group Bible study is a wonderful way both to know Jesus better and to know each other better. And we believe those things should happen at the same time. Uh, so that's a wonderful opportunity. Okay. Look how few announcements that was. I mean, we're streamlining. Stand down. Um, <laughs> so this semester in large group, we're discussing uh, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians in the Bible. As you may remember from a few weeks ago, I know it's been a long time, uh, I had an attempt at a title, which I'm going to stick with. It's my best attempt. And our study of Colossians this semester is going to be called this. What if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really wanted and needed anyway. Okay, so what if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really wanted and needed anyway. Um, really, this title is my best attempt at getting into what Colossians is about. The message, which is there are no junior varsity Christians. There just aren't. No second class junior varsity Christians. Um, if you believe in Jesus, you're on the varsity squad. There is only varsity. Being a Christian is not primarily about how many devotional books you've read, how making moral checklists, or enrolling in the latest and greatest Christian enhancement program. It is actually just about believing in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what Colossians is really hammering. Christianity is about resting resting and rejoicing in Jesus' finished work. The finished work of his life, death, and resurrection. His life, death, and resurrection. Okay. All that being said, Paul, the author of Colossians, is not against growing and getting better in your faith, in Christianity, if that's where you are. He's merely against measuring our growth against other people. Other people other than Jesus. If you're going to use a measuring stick for your growth, use Jesus Christ. Don't use someone else that you can have carry around your Christian equipment or sit the Christian bench. Okay? Because that's not what this is about. Um, and I, we do that in subtle ways, and we'll talk more about that as we get into that part of Colossians more. Um, but... Paul is saying in this passage, he's actually praying for uh, Christians to grow, for the Colossians to grow, and to grow in their knowledge of God and in every good word. But notice how Paul grounds this, this prayer, this request, in the perfect person and finished work of Christ. And we'll see that as we kind of unpack this passage. So with that in mind, future to Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 14. If you've got a Bible, if you don't, use your green sheet. 
Looks like this inside, right? Okay. And we're going to look at the passage. Uh, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? And as you're standing, if you're still looking for Colossians between Philippians, First Thessalonians, if you go past Romans, if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Okay. We're reading out of the English Standard Version. It's the translation of Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, much fine gold, and they are more sweet than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we're thankful for everyone gathered here. Uh, we're thankful for this time to look at your word, uh, to think about um, what Paul's trying to tell us about who you are and who we are. We're thankful, Father, that um, we get the opportunity to set some time aside um, to think about our lives and to think about where we're headed, uh, what we're doing. And I pray that you, Father, uh, would be glorified in this moment, that you would set this time apart so that we would see your, your son Jesus, we would see him high and lifted up. And I pray that our hearts, Father, would be high and lifted up through your spirit. We ask these things, tune our hearts to sing your praise. Uh, don't let us stay the same after hearing your word, reading it and hearing it preached. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. I forgot to mention that this is the unofficial RUF Mother's Day. Um, so, Jen and Tia, my wife's um, moms, are here, so be nice to them. <laughs> and they'll be nice to you. Um, okay. In his book, The Cross-Centered Life, C.J. Mahaney has a really wonderful illustration that I think captures how most of us feel and all of us, what all of us are doing. Okay. And it's really this. He describes this 1960s novelty act where the guy is a plate spinner. I don't know if you've probably seen something like this on television before. Uh, let me try to explain it, which it's, it's kind of hard to explain. Someone takes like a seven-foot-long flexible rod and starts spinning it, and they put a ceramic, very breakable plate on top of it, and it kind of wobbles and spins. And they, just, they get it going, and then they get another going, and another going, and eventually eight to ten... Plates are, are resting on individual rods, okay? So like rod and plate combos, there's eight to 10 of them, all spinning around on a stage at the same time. And really the, the reason that this is actually a novelty act and this is entertaining is because this is, um, there's excitement that you think a plate's gonna break. And you're like, you're either like really excited like you're the NASCAR fan that waits for the crash, or you're, the, you're excited because like, you're nervous for the guy that he's going to mess up on national television and lose his livelihood and live in a box. Um, so, anyway, uh, 
you're nervous basically that this guy's trying to manage all of these very breakable plates on top of very narrow, flexible little rods. And this sort of act of plate spinning is what Mahaney relates to um, the feeling of busy nervousness that a lot of Christians feel about their lives. Um, they're spinning plates. We're spinning plates. We're spinning the plate of reading a Bible in a year. We're meditating on Scripture. That's a plate. We're attending weekly prayer meetings. We're attending accountability groups. We're evangelizing every day. We're fasting weekly, and so on. Each of these are plates that we're constantly trying to spin and keep up. Okay. And these activities aren't bad in themselves, but with so many activities going on at once, it's hard not to actually lose track of why you're doing what you're doing and just try to keep the different things going. Um, and we quickly measure Christian success on, based on how many plates we have going and whether or not we let a Christian activity slip and a plate comes crashing down and shatters into a million pieces. And then I think what happens in that moment, in those moments before the plate cracks or the impossibility of trying to keep all these things together is that we are so consumed with making sure that we don't fail at Christianity that we, in fact, cease to enjoy the things that we're doing. We cease to enjoy the spinning of the plate of reading the Bible or prayer because we're so worried about it falling into the ground and breaking and us being a terrible failure. And really, I think that doesn't, that's my heinous sort of illustration, but let me take it a step further because that's what I do in every illustration and every metaphor. Um, I think it's not too hard to stretch that to... Uh, beyond Christian activities. I think it's really easy to think um, that even Christians are not just spinning Christian plates after all. And maybe you aren't a Christian here and you're sort of like, well, I don't really have the problem of trying to spin the plate of reading the Bible in a year. Um, and, but let me tell you what maybe we all have here. We all have the personal fitness plate that we're trying to spin to feel good about ourselves. We all have the academic performance plate and the family expectation plate and the social acceptance plate that we're all kind of spinning at the same time, trying to make sure that it doesn't fall. And if we fail, if we fail to work out one day that we're supposed to, or we make a few stupid, stupid comments with our friends, the plate feels like it's about to hit the floor, shattering to a thousand pieces. Do you get that a lot of us are constantly managing others other people's expectations of us. Okay, do you get that? I get that. I feel that. I don't have to look much farther than the way I dysfunctionally manage my Facebook account. Okay? I have this love-hate relationship as I use Facebook like my own private, personal, public relations expert. Okay? I'm just trying desperately to make the people out there um, make sure that they think what I want them to think about me. And so the same thing goes with my texts and the careful way I word my texts or the careful way I word my emails or Twitter or anything else that I'm doing that constantly manage my, my uh, sense of self. And the question becomes, how do we move forward in all of this anxious impossibility? How do we move forward when we're spinning tens and maybe hundreds of plates at the same time? That we're constantly managing other people's expectations for us trying to give them the right PR. And we're so worried, consciously and unconsciously, that these plates might fall. Or maybe you're in a different stage. What happens when they start crashing? What happens when you say the wrong things and do the wrong things and you're not picture perfect anymore? What happens when you say mispreaching the second large group of the semester 
when you're sick, and that's your identity. It's founded very surely on doing a good job as an RUF minister. Oh, just, you know, just for instance, okay? <laughs> um, what do you do then? What do you do when these plates come crashing down, or they feel like they're going to crash down? How do you proceed? In 2009, a guy named Tullian Chavidian felt like the plates all began to crash down by the way, full disclosure, this like really cool title that I have for my sermon slash talk is from Tulin Shavidian. Um, I stole it, not from his book title, but from another part of his talk, okay? So I wish I could do like cool math like that, like Jesus, you know, nothing minus Jesus equals, or everything minus Jesus equals nothing, or whatever, but I can't. Um, so back to Tulin. Um, 2009, Tulin's father, like the rock star, the hero, the firm foundation of his family, is in intensive care for six months and finally passes away. And then he takes over this massive church in Florida that was run by a Christian legend who just recently passed away. And that went well for about ten days. And then everyone hated him. People started to criticize him and lie about him. And his reputation was totally ruined. What other people thought of him, his approval, his acceptance, just totally failed. It was trashed. And even, even people started to petition, like these little petitions, or circulate petitions, to get him fired from his job. That's a pretty big deal. Um, so basically what was going on is people were knocking over these rods that Tulian was trying to spin to keep his plates up. People were just bashing them down. And what did, what did that make Tulian feel? He, he says that he felt anxious, and then as he saw the plates crash to the ground, he felt nauseous, but Tullian then took a vacation with his family uh, to the coast of Florida and on the second morning he got through his Bible and there and then he read a passage Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 true story and these verses, the same that we're studying tonight changed him forever, his words listen to the way he puts it God used these verses to help me rediscover the now power of the gospel. The gospel is the central message of Christianity. In a brand new, bright, and liberating ways, the gospel became colorful, colorful for me, and I'm not the same as a result of that. It was these verses specifically, verses 9 through 14, that God used to revive my spiritually depressed soul. It was these verses specifically, verses 9 through 14, that God used to revive my spiritually depressed soul. That is a huge claim. Do you get that? How big that is? How weighty that claim is? There he is, like puking, not sleeping, frustrated with everything, life, wife, everything. And he says these verses changed him. And when we just read them, they sound a lot like other verses in the Bible, right? It's a lot like what Paul begins every letter like, if you've read the New Testament. How do these verses help Tullian when the plates of social acceptance and social approval fell down and hit the ground and broke into a thousand pieces? How do these verses help us spinning a hundred different spiritual and non-spiritual plates? How does it help us when we feel like it's impossible not to fail? How does it help us from moving from managing other people's expectations of us to actually enjoying other people? And being in the moment, not managing them. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 provides a powerful path forward because these verses describe what Christian life is all about. They describe what to do and know. I'm going to extend the metaphor to breaking. Ready? What place to spin, so to speak. But the, Because really, you've got to understand the goal isn't to stop doing and caring about anything. That's not what the goal of life is. But these verses also describe how we can deal with plates breaking. How do we deal with our failures? And how this forgiveness changes the metaphor. It changes how we view life. Life doesn't have to feel like spinning plates after all, once you understand forgiveness. So let me put it really simply. I really, I'm actually very afraid that I've lost you in this plate spinning metaphor. Um, it's 1960s novelty acts. Um, maybe I should have used NASCAR after all. But um, let me put it real, sim- real simply. The passage of, of Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 tells us this. Know God richly and do good. Know God richly and do good. Because, God, because Jesus has ransomed his people from our failures and our badness. So I'm going to say it again. Know God richly and do good. This is what the whole passage is about. Because Jesus has ransomed his people from our failures and our badness. Our passage makes a simple but life-changing claim in a very clear fashion. Verses 9 through 12, we see what knowing God and doing good look like. We see this in Paul's faithful prayer for us. Then in verses 12 through 14, we see what ransom from failures and badness looks like. What does it look like? It's in verses 12 through 14. And we see it primarily in Jesus' work on the cross. So in other words, verses 9 through 12 tell us what to do and know. And then verses 12 through 14 tell us what Jesus did and knew for us. That's what's going on here. And that truth changes lives. So let's get into it. Verses 9 through 12 will start in the very beginning with the beginning uh, in Paul's prayer. So look at verse 9 with me if you haven't. I'm going to state the extreme obvious here. Paul is sharing what he prays for the Colossians. Rocket science, okay? But why is he doing that? Why is he sharing that? Paul's giving us a model not just what to pray, but how to pray. Think about it this way. Notice three things that he's doing. First, as opposed to a lot of us, me sometimes included, Paul actually does pray for the Colossians. He's actually praying for other people. Second, Paul tells other people he's praying for them. But he doesn't just stop by praying and telling other people he's praying for them. Notice what he does the third thing, and I think this thing is very powerful. He tells them what he's praying for them about. Does that make sense? He tells them what he's praying for them about. And I know this feels like a really minor point. You're like, okay, that's interesting. What's that about? But I would love to see RUF as a community do this. I think it would actually change our community. What would it look like for us to pray for each other, tell each other we're praying for each other, and not only that, tell each other what we're praying about for each other? That'd be huge. That changes a lot of things in a lot of people's lives. And I think if we did it with good motives, it would be beautiful. Beautiful. But let's move in. What does it mean? What is Paul actually praying for? What is he praying about for the Colossians? Paul is asking the Colossians 
he's asking God that the Colossians would know the will of God so that they will walk in a way that pleases God. Okay? So he's asking that the Colossians would know the will of God and that they would walk in a way pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Following? Um, and these two requests, by the way, are repeated in many, many, many of Paul's letters. Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon, to name a few. Because they also describe the ideal Christian life. Do you get that? It's important because what Paul's asking for here is Christian normal. He's asking for what every Christian, what we all should ask for and want. What we should all ask for and want for ourselves, for our friends, for our family, and for strangers that we see at Friends or International Delights or wherever else. Okay? This is what he's doing. It's super important, and it's urgent that we unpack what he's saying about the normal, everyday, beautiful Christian life. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Um, we want to know exactly what God wants us to know and to do. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 9 and 12. Okay, let me read verse 9. Paul prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What in the heck does that even mean? I think sometimes we get to Paul's letters and we think, that's beautiful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So beautiful. We don't understand what that means at all. Okay? That's, I mean, there's something really great about that song, but I mean, I guess the point is that we don't understand what it is that Paul's trying to say. What is the Bible? What does Paul mean by God's will? All right. So, I'm about to enter into a Christian firestorm, by the way. So, if I offend you in advance, I kind of apologize. Um, you know, this is like NMSU RUF Facebook page. Um, do I know Terrell? Do I? I don't know. He was pretty big on that debate. I don't know who he is. Um, maybe I've met him. But just look at the recent debate on the NMSU RUF Facebook page and you'll see that this is a huge issue um, about what does it mean that what God's will mean. What is Paul praying that the Colossians that we would know? Look, I don't have time to like lay out the biblical argument from like, Genesis to Revelation to be this sweeping like, 300 page masterpiece on what the will of God is. So you're going to have to take my word on this and ask questions later. Um, but I'll give you a couple of proofs and a couple ideas. But really, whenever the phrase, the will of God is used in the Bible, almost always, it's referring to what God is asking us to do, obedience, rather than asking about who you're supposed to marry or what kind of job you're going to do that is making life decisions. And that already ticks some of you off. That's okay. I'm fine with that. I'm really just trying to take the will of God and, and turn it from a Ouija board into obedience. That's really what I'm trying to do. Okay? I feel like sometimes when people like the will of God, they just get like kind of, I don't know how to describe it. But that's sort of what it looks like. Um, and I've talked to you enough folks, and I've done this myself, where I've done that Ouija board dance before. Um, and I really like want to kind of make this clear. So I'm, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 is where I look. Okay? Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is my biblical proof. And you, there's plenty of these texts, by the way. I just don't have time to go through them. The secret things, okay, secret things, that is your husband's future, your future husband's name, who will win the next Super Bowl, those things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, that is the, how to love God, how to love your neighbor, those sort of things, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do the words of this law. 
This law being the revealed teaching of Moses, of the Bible. Okay? So what does that mean? Look, practically speaking, where do you go to find the will of God? What does the God of the universe want and desire for us? Where do we go to look for that? To the Bible. To the Bible. His revealed teachings, and we trust that the Holy Spirit, spiritual understanding and wisdom, will apply those teachings to our heart through our trust and faith. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what it means to look for the will of God. And look, if you want more biblical proof text, just read John, Gospel of John chapters 14 and 16. The Holy Spirit is there to take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to individual believers' hearts. That's the will of God. Okay? Um, and let me just make this real clear. Why else are we doing this? Okay, if there was another way to get the will of God, and that's the prayer of like the entire scripture for Paul and all the peoples of the churches everywhere, why the heck are we meeting to preach the Bible? Why are we reading the Bible in quiet times? Why are we doing those things? You guys should just go and have a mystical experience somewhere. Like what I mean, I don't mean to be rude about it. I don't I think feelings and mystical experiences are fine. But the ordinary, normal way that you find God's will is looking at the Bible and using and the Spirit using that. Okay? So and that's the reason that RUF teaches the Bible in, in situations like this. And that's the reason that we do small groups that are Bible studies, because we think that's where you find the will of God. And that's how you grow in the knowledge of the does that make sense? Um, that's really, that's the thing, okay? So what Paul is praying for us and for the Colossians is to know God's will, and that means um, that you would look to the Bible and you would look to the Scripture illuminating the Bible. Oh, not Scripture, the Spirit illuminating the Bible. Okay? Look, you have further questions, you have arguments. I wish this were like a dialogue. Like, Sid, what about this passage? That's just not the way this is set up. International Lights, on the other hand, is set up that way. Come talk to me. Q&A corner, maybe we could reinstate that. Um, ask me about this. Say, hey, you're full of it, Sid. Um, here's why. Um, you know, I levitate for a living. That's fine. <laughs> I'll talk to you about that, okay? I'd love to talk to you about that. Okay? <laughs> and learn how to do that. That's pretty cool. Um, I'd love to do cross it especially. Okay. <laughs> So let me keep going. What does it look like to walk with God? We're just going to keep going through this prayer. Thankfully, the text is more detailed on this point, so I don't have to pull out Deuteronomy 29, 29, and John 14, 16. Um, verses 10 through 12 explain what walking worthily of God looks like. Okay? It's a bunch of um, descriptors. Walking worthy looks like bearing gospel fruit in every good work. Okay? That's acting in faith, hope, and love. And that comes from gospel, grace, and peace. We talked a lot about that two weeks ago. Verses 1 through 8 are about that. But I want you to notice something. Our actions, like love, come from God's actions, like grace. Okay? And why is that important? Because love can't will itself into existence. You can't will enough love. Just like fruit can't will itself into existence. It's not like a raspberry really wants to be a raspberry. That's what happens. Okay? That's the metaphor that's going on bearing fruit of every good word. Okay, let's move on. Walking worthy also looks like being strengthened with all power, which is really God himself's glorious might and being filled with that. That's huge, by the way. I think we kind of skip over that. That's a big deal, that God is doing amazing things with his power, his might in our lives. Let me just stop there for a second. 
I'm really going to give you the difference between the word endurance and patience. Because I think those are basically the same word in most of our minds. When I read that, I was like, okay, he's just repeating himself. But in the original Greek of the, of the passage, Paul wrote in the language Greek, um, he says, it actually, the word endurance refers to the ability to withstand a military attack, to hold your position. Okay? Which I think is a pretty cool image, because I love metaphors. Maybe. But... Um, and this really is referring to the fact that what does it mean to stand in hard, oppressive circumstances? What does it mean to, to feel attacked by life and yet stand in faith? You need the might of God for that. And, it, and also the might of God gives us patience. This is a different word in the Greek, and it means, it refers to a slowness of anger, especially towards other people. You know, people rub us the wrong way, Okay. Um, I like to say we're called to love everyone, but not to like everyone. Um, but really, what I what I think that what we're meaning by that, but patience is when people rub you wrong or you feel like they're against you, you're willing to endure with them, you're willing to bear with them in love and encouragement and speak to the truth. And God's might is with you in these tough moments and with these tough people. And that's the promise and the prayer that we hope for. Third, what does walking worthy look like? Giving thanks to the Father of God. Like sort of Father God with joy. And according to one commentator, spontaneous joy or spontaneous gratitude is a sign of coming to know and love God. Okay? So gratitude is a sign of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? Now I personally stink at gratitude, um, but it doesn't make me question my salvation. So if you're on that progressive plane like me, maybe we can pray for each other together and you can tell me what you're praying about, and I'll tell you that I'm praying for you about gratitude as well. Okay, so here we go. Fourth, walking worthily finally looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. I love this. Look at this. So knowing God richly leads to doing good. But notice, doing good leads to further knowing God richly. They mutually inform each other. They they spiral up into a greater and greater thing. Um, But look, this is pretty abstract. I've done the best I can. I've gone to the original Greek, given you metaphors. But that's really abstract, and that's part of why a lot of people breeze through the first chapter of every Paul letter. Okay, I've done my best to give you nuance, but let me kind of give this flesh and bones, and get, make these ideas of walking worthily really come alive for you. Okay, and I'm going to use the life of a guy named John Patton. Okay, John Patton was a missionary to the Outer Hebrides. Okay, Outer Hebrides are the northwest corner above Scotland, so this place was freezing is freezing, probably still, and is basically really hard to inhabit. You can't live there very well. So not surprisingly, the people that John Patton uh, ministered to were cannibals, which is really fun. Um, So there he is, guarding the grave of his wife and his child, who have died because it's freezing, and they're trying to dig up the bodies and eat them. And John Patton's fighting them off in the name of Jesus. Okay, so um, in the midst of this very hard mission, John Patton comes up with, he's trying to translate the Bible into the peoples of the Outer Hebrides language, okay? And he's, he's trying to translate the word faith, and he comes up with a striking definition. It's this. Leaning your whole weight upon someone or something. Leaning your whole weight upon someone or something. Okay? That's what he defines as faith. But what makes this definition so striking is that Patton exercises this definition of faith every single day in his mission. How? 
he literally leaned his weight upon the people of the heavens. Why? Because every time they saw him, they attacked him because they wanted to eat him. Okay? And he was a foreigner. So they would throw rocks and spears and shoot bows and arrows. And what he realized is if he ran at them as fast as he could, that they would have a less likely chance of hitting him. Okay? And then when he got there, he would hug them and say, I'm your best friend, and I've come to tell you about Jesus. They're hugging, he's hugging people with spears in their hands, by the way, who want to eat him. Um, just look, for instance, at how God, knowing God and doing God, mutually increased each other in John Patton's life. Okay? Look, his definition of faith, knowing God, informed his evangelism, doing good, right? But then look how the way that he's, he's hugging cannibals made the definition of faith, leaning on something or someone, even more real every day to him. Do you get that? These are mutually informing. So when you know God's will, so that you may walk worthily, you walk worthily so that you might know God's will further. And that's what John Patton's living. And that's not to mention his life is full, just right, with fruits like good works and gratitude and the power of patience and endurance. For Pete's sake, he's guarding the grave of his child and his wife from cannibals and hugging them in the name of Jesus. Okay? But, here's the question for us. How did John Patton become like that? What moved him to do that? How did he go to the cannibals and hug them in the name of Jesus? Like, what's that all about? This is where verses 12 through 14 come to bear. Okay? It's all about Jesus' ransom. It's all about what Jesus knew and did for him, what Jesus knew and did for the Colossians, and has done for those of us who believe in him. And that's what Paul is begging. By the end of this, by the end of this prayer, he is, he is on his knees, sweating it out, that we would know the ransom of Jesus Christ so that we would change. You see, verses 12 through 14 describe the already finished, already realized reality of redemption. Redemption refers to the way that God has literally ransomed his people from selfishness, failure, darkness, and everything bad. Everything. By buying us with the blood of Christ. So God literally and historically paid for the life of everyone who believed in Jesus. On the cross. And he did it by paying his son's life, his son's Jesus life, for our lives. It was an exchange. It was a payment. One life for many. And this exchange of payment happened 2,000 years ago on a bone heap outside Jerusalem. It was a historical fact. And actually, even Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. It's done. And you can see that from the tense of the many, many verbs in verses 12 through 14. They're all past tense, qualified, Delivered, transferred. Those are all past tense verbs. They're all done 2,000 years ago, completed and finished. And this is what is important about that point. Okay, So you're like, that's awesome. You just told me the gospel, which maybe I've heard before, maybe I haven't. That's, that's really neat. Um, but here's the takeaway. What, what, that is an incredibly freeing act. Do you get that? It's freeing. It's freeing in two ways. It's freeing from the consequences of sin... That's, that is, it frees us from our guilt and fear about our personal failures. Do you get that? Every time you drop a spinning plate in your life, every time you let someone down, every time you fail to care, 
Every time you do something stupid and wrong, no matter how stupid and how wrong and how recent it was, that shattered plate doesn't. That shattered plate can't define who you are anymore if you believe in Jesus. You are freed from being defined by the sum of your mistakes or your successes. You are defined by the life and finished blood work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's huge. Second, you're freed from the power of sin, the control that bad instincts and bad desires have over us. And I, this is really brilliant. And this comes from a guy named Immanuel Kant. It doesn't really matter if you know your philosophy. That's cool, whatever. Okay? He's not a, he's, he's not a Christian. He is as far from Christianity as possible. He pretty much took the Western world in the opposite trajectory. But he has a brilliant insight about freedom that we all need to listen to. Okay? He says this. We often think of freedom in the wrong way. We think of freedom as a lack of obstacles to doing whatever we want. So if we have the, the path is clear to do whatever we want, we think we're free. But he's saying true freedom, this is what the Bible is saying too, is true freedom goes deeper. It tells us that we're slaves of appetites and desires and social customs that we didn't even choose freely. Or we didn't even choose at all. I mean, think about the constant sexual desire that most of you feel, that I feel. And that, that just runs the hard drives of our lives. Or think about that craving to be stick-thin at any cost that just kills you. Or even our demand for a comfortable, great life. Like, it's amazing, when I was sick, I was like, the, the thing I kept thinking was, I don't deserve this. I don't, what's that about? Like, God, what are you doing? I deserve to be healthy. That, that demand rules us all the time, and the minute we obey it, we're not free. And that's our natural inclination is to obey that. But look what verses 12 through 14 are saying. They're saying if you believe in Jesus, you can resist the cravings, you can resist the desires, you can resist the habits by the, spiritual, by the Holy Spirit's power. Do you get that? That's huge. So you're no longer at the beck and call of every single whim of desire that you have. And in fact, Christianity is about exercising freedom in the opposite direction, saying, I don't have to obey my thirst, thank you very much, Sprite. I can actually not drink. Okay, That's the whole point. You can be free to do things that you have freely chosen, as opposed to acting like an automatic machine. In other words, you can let some of some or many of those spinning plates that you have in your life drop to the ground, and you can still be a-okay. Because you didn't need them anyway. They're just slavery. And understanding this freedom by Jesus' ransom is what literally rescued Tullian Chavidian in the summer of 2009. He soaked it. He marinated five words of verses 12 through 14 over and over and over again. And these are the five words. Qualified, delivered, transferred, redemption, and forgiveness. Qualified, delivered, transferred, redemption, and forgiveness. And look, I don't have time to go into what those things mean, but let me just tell you what Tullian says they mean, okay? For him and for us, it's simple. Jesus has already earned the acceptance, the approval, the affection of God for us. It's done. It's finished. Everything we need and long for in Christ we already possess past tense. Again, in the words of Tullian, because Jesus has won for you, you're free 
to lose. Because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. In other words, the Christian life is not primarily about what we do. And Colossians is going to kill us about this. It's really important. Christian life is primarily about what we believe that Jesus has done for us. That's the central message of Christianity. And this freedom will change your relationships and the very way in which you view the world. So life doesn't have to feel like spinning plates anymore. Do you get that? Verses 12 through 14 remind us what we believe and receive matters more than what we achieve. What we believe and receive matters much more than what we achieve. In other words, we're free to abandon some of the spinning plates, maybe many of them, and we're free to let the other ones fall at any time. And we'll look up and life will be okay with Jesus. But what about verses 9 through 12, right? Let's circle back there. Isn't, God, isn't Paul saying, isn't God saying through Paul that there's like a good way to live? There's a better way to live that we're not just free to do whatever, but that we're free to do something mainly know God's will and walk with an obedience to, that pleases God. How does this like? How does this work? How does that fit with the freedom of not having to spin plates anymore? And this is where I suggest a better me- metaphor. Sorry, C.J. Mahaney. Sid Druin, we're going to do a new metaphor. Okay? And it goes back to my childhood, of course. Um, and perhaps this is going to take all of the long, boring parts of the sermon and pull them together beautifully. And maybe you'll cry at the end. I doubt that this time. Um, Although we did last time. Um, uh, I grew up in an urban neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio in the 80s. Um, and like most urban neighborhoods in the 1980s, it was filled with elderly people and gay people. Why is that important? Why is that important? It's important, it's important because they were very few kids. You just have to do the biological math there. Okay? <laughs> I was like one of five kids. I mean, in a pretty densely populated area. So, anyway... I did have a few friends, a couple, couple friends, and, and what actually my friend Nick and I did is we would just go to these various friends who had, each had cool things. Like one of them had a Nintendo, like before Nintendo even came out, for like the Japanese version or something, and I was like, this guy's awesome. So we'd go to his house. And then in the suburb, we went to my friend Jacob's house, who had an above ground pool, which at the time I thought was rad. Um, and he was, it, anyway, so I can't remember a time I went to Jacob's house and didn't swim. So that just tells you our relationship. Use and abuse. I'm sorry. That's what happened. I was swimming in his above-ground circular pool. That's what I did for a living um, in the summers. Anyway, one of our favorite activities in the pool was making a whirlpool. Have you ever done that? Where you like you run along the side of the, inside of the pool, and all of a sudden like you run long enough, and all of a sudden the water gets moving in the direction you're running, and you're like floating there as the water whips you around the pool. Uh, this is one of the best things ever. Um, anyway. I think the Christian life is like swimming in a pool with a whirlpool. This is my metaphor. Ready? You're free to float on your back. You are. You're free. Because Jesus has and is running around the pool to make that current. Okay? You don't have to generate that current. You can just float. You're free to do that. Okay? But there's a sense in which Jesus is inviting us to run behind him in the Christian life. There's a sense in which to know God more richly, to do good, to hug folks in Jesus' name. 
this running, by some sort of mysterious work of God's will, actually makes the whirlpool better. It makes the current stronger and better for you, so that you and your friends can come and float all the better every once in a while. Do you get that metaphor? Maybe? Okay. Maybe not. Life is not about managing spinning plates. This is what life's about. Life is about swimming and resting and rejoicing in the current of God's love. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I thank you for this time together. Um, I thank you for silly metaphors that somehow helped me. I pray that you would use this passage to change our lives, to, to literally rescue us from the habits that we have, the desires that we have, from the freedom, from the slavery that we think is freedom. And I pray that you would help us um, to know your will, to do it, um, that we could march behind you and make the current of your love faster and more glorious and the floating even better. I pray, Father, for that mercy and that kindness to us. And I pray that you'd help us to carry this with us in a week and to tuck it in our pocket as we sit by and offer strangers and love friends who we meet in the middle of campus. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.